I want to be talking to you today about something that is on my heart hard and getting more severe as, as each passing day goes by. I want to talk today about the four conditions of revival in the Old Testament. I'm reading a book from uh, an author named Walter Kaiser, who is an Old Testament uh, scholar. I believe he's probably Scottish too, but uh, he wrote a book called Revive Us Again, and his whole emphasis in that book was to take a look at revival from the Old Testament, and that's what we're going to be doing today. So I've adapted some of this material from him because we're, we're going to look at some very familiar passages of Scripture today but we're going to correlate those to what I would call what has become simply little more than a coffee cup slogan of a promise of God. Um, before I do, though, I want to read to you an excerpt from another book that I'm reading uh, about the, uh, the Boston Revival of 1842. And in this book, it, uh, it has some interesting things to say about how God moves in real, heaven-sent, biblical revival. And I want to just challenge you, when I say the word revival, don't think of a tent, don't think of theatrics or shiny suits, don't think of gospel dues, that's the big haircut, okay? Don't think of any of that. I want you to think about a holy reckoning. Because the word revival is a severe term. It has great ferocity associated with it in great acts of mercy. In reviewing the history of the revival as it appeared in Boston, we remark that the special prayer or we remark that special prayer precedes a revival of religion. Now I want to say here when you write when you read old works they use the word religion synonymously with the Christian life so don't let that turn you off Some have erroneously supposed that the late revival in this city Boston did not commence until after the year 1842 began but the facts that have been developed in the statements made by several of the church is in the year 1841 the revival in Garden Street Church commenced with her existence, which was in July 1841. In other words, a church sprang up simply because God brought revival and a church sprang from it. In Bodoan Street Church, a spirit of prayer was manifested early in the autumn. The same was true respecting Marlboro Chapel and Central Church. Prayer seized them in the autumn of that year. The pastor of the South Boston Baptist Church says that the church was revived some months before the Reformation commenced. So there was a buildup. And if you remember the video we watched about the Canadian pastor Bill McLeod and how God brought revival to Canada, there was a, a great buildup of their prayer meeting before God actually brought that great movement. He said... Um, in Mr. Stowe's church, the revival commenced in the autumn. The pastor of Bodoan Square Church says, I found an improving religious feeling among my people throughout the autumn. So it was, it was growing in the people, growing, like pressure in a pressure tank, if you will. 
which gave me full confidence that the winter would develop results of the most animating character. That's how he writes. The same was also true in several of the Methodist churches. From a reference to these testimonies, it is evident that there was an awakened spirit of prayer considerably extensive in the city during the autumn months. So I think you should be able to see a pattern here. Prayer precedes revival. Okay? The world was not indeed aware of these weepings in secret places. And he's referring to the saints who were alone in their prayer closets, crying out to God for revival and awakening. Many professors of religion were in a profound sleep and as busy about their worldly affairs as though they had never been bought with the price of atoning blood. But still the number was not small that cried day and night, O Lord, revive thy work. For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest. Therefore go forth as brightness, and the salvation therefore as the lamp that burneth. They prayed scripture to God, and God to come down in holiness and renewal on on the people. That's what they prayed, with weeping. The Lord heard and answered these prayers. This fact is nothing that is peculiar to this revival. God has always connected ends with means. When he restored the children of Israel from Babylonian captivity, he would yet for this be inquired of before he would do it for them. Did they not pray for revival? They did. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and others prayed, fasted, and wept. God heard their prayers and restored them to the land of their fathers. Um, uh, uh, into the land of their fathers' graves. Before the revival, at the day of Pentecost, a ten days prayer meeting was held in that upper room by the primitive disciples, and whenever the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our day, it has always been preceded by prayer. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. In answer to prayer, he that has all hearts in his hand and turns them as the rivers of water are turned, turns them unto himself. When his children cry, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down and make the mountains flow down at thy presence, he does the things that they desire. The heavens are rent, God comes down to earth, and the mountains melt. He turns back again the captivity of Zion as streams of the south. This is important. This is really what you need to get. Let not any church vainly imagine that God will visit them with a time of refreshing if they are living in a prayerless state. Prayers must go up before blessings come down. I'm going to read that one again, okay? Let not any church vainly imagine that God will visit them with a time of refreshing if they are living in a prayerless state. Prayers must go up before blessings come down. This is the instituted ordinance of God. His injunction is, pray without ceasing, pray always, and not faint. Martin Moore, Boston Revival, 1842. Four conditions of revival then. 
in the Old Testament. Oh, by the way, I just want to add something. One of the things that I've been reading is that they not only talk about how you can tell when God is moving in power in His people by the way they pray. You can tell when you have obligatory praying and when you have passion-driven praying. There's something else that's a giveaway. And JT, you're going to like this. It's how they sing. You can always tell by how they sing. I heard it in both the Hebrides revival of a video of the old folks that had, were left. This was taken back sometime in the 60s and 70s. And I heard it even before from the Welsh revival that was left over. People would say, after the revival had, had long since abated, I can always tell who were in those days because of the way they sang. God fills the fiber of your being. And that kind of singing that God brings from a a renewed heart of prayer and passion and revival would send even someone like J.T. Stature off the stage because the, the cacophony of praise would be so brilliant and sharp he wouldn't be able to be heard. And I know that's his desire too. And the same can be said for praying. Four conditions then of the revival, of revival in the Old Testament. Horatius Boner was true. I looked for the church and I found it in the world. I looked for the world and I found it in the church. This is how we are today. Okay? I shared in our Sunday school class that in churches in Oklahoma, where my area of Oklahoma was from, much of an area just like this, They created and built a huge sports complex. It has volleyball courts, soccer fields, football fields, basketball courts, track, you name it, they've got it. It's open seven days a week. This is in addition to the school. This is in addition to the rec center. And it is a very common sight today for my pastor friend to say it is not uncommon to see the children bring in their, or the parents bring in their children all dressed in their their outfit, their, their sports uniform. And as soon as the invitation is given, they're out the door because they've got to get to the game. That's where they've come to. That's what they're teaching the kids. In the New England states of the 1700s, one of the, uh, uh, I believe his name was... Uh, um, Increase Mather. He's a very popular name if you've never heard of him. But he said this, that it was in the second generation after the first revivals that they began to turn and drift. The second generation. Well, John Piper was right. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I think that's where we come to today. So why should we study revival? You're probably asking me, if you're new to Northridge, this is what you're going to get a lot of. Because if you look around in our world today, it's on fire. And the amount of praying we're doing is simply, and, 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 and focus we're giving is simply like this. I'm going to, Brother Kim, you're always so sanguine and nice back over there. I'm going to look at it like this. Brother Kim, you and Gail's house is on fire. It's starting back in your right bedroom. 
And Kim says, oh, boy, that's, that's kind of bad. Let me go get a bucket of water, and we're going to throw it on there. And, and then Gail brings one. We, we, we threw the water on there, but uh, that's good enough for today. We'll just close the door and come back in a month. What's happening then? You got the answer? Well, I'll tell you what's happening. The whole time they're sitting there thinking it's okay, the door's closed, their house is burning down. And that's exactly what's happening in our world today. The entire Western Hemisphere of Christianity is burning down because we are enamored by sports and games and Salaries and, and, and pensions and retirements and vacations and food and TV shows and stupid cell phones and computers and any other thing to get us in the way of God's heart. And we won't come and wet the altar because I'll tell you this, until this thing is sopping wet with the prayers of the saints, it isn't going to put out any fires. It just didn't. You can shut that door all you want to. And it's burning. Here's why I study revival. It's motivational. I like to read about what God has done before because it gives me hope. And this is biblical stuff. It shows us biblical methods for pursuing prayer for revival. It, it keeps us from getting into perversions of revival because the devil loves to circumvent the work of God by offering counterfeits. It acquaints us with the types of people God uses in revival. We learn that what they were externally, they were in their hearts. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. It shows us how to prepare for revival. This is where we're going to get to a Second Chronicles seven fourteen because it gives four conditions that clearly are seen in revival. And it shows us how the Lord has acted in the past and better prepares us for His special workings to come. That's biblical revival. So let's look at it then. The four conditions of revival, you've all, this is what I would call the coffee cup slogan of what God can do to make your life feel better. But if you really look at it, it's a wire welder's brush on your soul. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And then of course, because Solomon was the one that was there praying and God was responding, God says, I will open my ears and I will be attentive to prayer made in this place. And I believe with all my heart that though that was directed to the Jewish nation, those of us who have been grafted into the promises of Abraham too, okay, we can have it, and we do, because God doesn't differentiate in that to the degree that he withholds his blessing from his people. So there are four conditions. Let's look at them. Number one, wire brush number one. Here's the first bristle, humility, and it makes a giant gouge in your soul. Number two, seeking. It causes you to take notice. Number three, it causes you to cry out in prayer. And number four, you just want relief, so you repent. Now, here's the fun thing. If my people are called by my name, and with the help of Brother Kaiser, here's some things I want to read to you. This is a clause so distinctive to both Testaments 
that its meaning could never be confused or mistaken. What God or man named, he owned and protected, whether that included cities, the temple, men and women. Thus, when Israel walked by faith, Moses promised that all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. And now, so in the same way, James noted how God had visited the Gentiles to take them out of them a people for his name. And if you look up those verses, you will find that God would identify the city, a city for my name. Okay? And if you look at the temple, the temple where my name will dwell. Okay? If you're looking at the people that's identified with God, my people for my name. We are, we bear the name of God in us as Christians. When we have been bought by the blood of Christ, we've come to the throne of grace, we've received Christ by faith, we've repented of our sin, he makes in us a new creature, he instills his spirit inside of us so that we cry out, Abba, Father, and we want nothing more than to be satisfied with him. But then something terrible happens. Something so insidious and slow and seductive happens. And that thing that happens is that we begin to be lulled asleep by the simple rocking of the world to tell us there's no hurry. Everything is fine. Everything will go as it's always done. You got plenty of food. You got plenty of money. You got plenty of gas. You got a house. You don't need God really that bad. Just take your ease. And I want to tell you the whole time. Your house is on fire. This is happening. And it is rich mercy that God warns his people to say, you've grieved me. You've quenched me. Repent and I will restore you. And I will bring showers of blessings upon you. And I'll fill your heart to such overflowing, there wouldn't be a truck big enough to haul you away. Because that's God's heart to do that. Remember, if my people who are called by my name, if you're here as a Christian and you're blaming the world for the problem, you're misdirected. Do you understand? We are indwelt by the very Godhead. We can go pray where Isaiah fell down as a dead man and was literally dissolving. This is the place we get to go pray in before the Father. We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. But oh, how we get so infected with the junk that doesn't matter. First up, if you will look, and you may not can read it. If you can't, that's okay. But I want to tell you today about four, uh, one, two, five kings. Rehoboam, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And I'm going to have to tell you really fast, okay? Number one, Rehoboam, and this is all in Second Chronicles chapter. Uh, this is all in Second Chronicles where all these things happen. After Solomon died, the nation of Israel split into two: the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Judah was the only tribe back yonder in the south, and then all the rest of them were up north. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And Rehoboam decided he was going to be a very hard leader. And he had consulted with his young friends, and they, and they told all the people, I will scourge you with scorpions, and my little finger will be thicker than my father's waist, which is a way of saying in Old Testament terms, you guys are in for trouble. He was full of himself. He was raised in privilege. And he didn't need anybody. But very quickly, he learned something. That without humility, you will die. So Rehoboam, in 2 Chronicles chapter, uh, uh, I think I, I wrote that down there, but 11 and 12, it says, Then Shemaiah, the prophet, came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah, who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak, because God will always raise up an enemy to get a hold of the nation that sins against him. Now, I want to I say this to you. There has never been a nation in the world that ever got so powerful that God did not specifically design an enemy that could take it down. That's right. That's a fact. So Shishak was Rehoboam's. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, and therefore I also have left you in the hand of Shishak. Oh, no. So the leaders of Israel and the king, notice this word, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. my people, humbled themselves and they said, The Lord is righteous. Now when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves. Therefore, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. And then later on in verse 12, Rehoboam humbled himself. The wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to destroy him completely. And things, now I love this last part of this verse. Notice, and things also went well in Judah. Now that's an understatement. If you notice, we have Josiah. So up at the top of the list, we have Rehoboam. At the bottom, we have Josiah. Both talk about humbling yourselves. In, in Old Testament and in poetry, especially in biblical poetry, we have a literary device, what's known as an inclusio. And an inclusio is simply a way to frame a response by identifying the most important components. Think of a sandwich. Think of a, sand, a BLT, if you will, okay? The good stuff is in the middle, but that which holds it together is on the outsides, the bread. What we see here with Rehoboam and Josiah is humility. In other words, you will have no revival of soul. You will have no peace and deliverance for your nation. You will not approach God at all lest you come in humility. What does humility look like? Well, it looks like a person who is completely finished with their way wants nothing but peace with God and is willing to lay in place and pray for as long as he has to or she has to to receive forgiveness and restoration. It 
Humility looks like giving up in order to give in, in order to get up, in order to get out. Okay? Humility is the very sandwich of God's grace. And without it, you won't have anything. Josiah, Second Chronicles 34, 19 Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes, which is a sign of humility. And verse 27, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you. And clearly what we see in this inclusio, if you will, is the simple fact of this. When we humble ourselves before God, He hears us, which then there is another lesson that we need to take note of here, and it's simply this. You will not be heard in praying with a proud heart. You just won't. Well, there's Asa who said we have the issue of seeking God's face. Remember 2 Chronicles 7, 14, my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you were, while you were with him. Notice the, the clause, If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. Now this was at the front end of Asa's reign. And it didn't end well for Asa. Because we have in in chapter 16 and verse 12 that Asa became diseased in his feet. And it says, yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Somewhere, Asa stopped seeking God, but at the front end of his reign and the blessings of God came on it, it was because he was seeking God. And none of us can ignore the fact, regardless of what the the revisionist historians as of late would like to say, the United States, while not established as as a theocracy or a Christian nation, was based upon Christian law, upon Christian idea. There was a place of honoring to God in it. And and God is so rich in mercy that he honored that. You just literally need to look at the Senate building there. And what's behind, what's written. It all reflects those roots. And now what reigns in its place? We have done as a nation, and I have to be careful when I say this because I know I in no way, you cannot, you should never tie Christianity to a, to a nation, a, a, a historic nation because Christians are a people of God and we are in this country together. But in revisionist history, they try to erase all those influences. And now what reigns in its place is something little more than like what happened in the day of... Uh, of what Josiah had to deal with. They had taken the temple that was left standing, hadn't been destroyed just yet, coming, and they had filled it full of pagan symbols and all kinds of sexually perverse imagery in the very temple of God. They did that. 
I can't, I can't even, I can't imagine doing that. But they did that. And then, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Josiah's like, hey, we found the law. <laughs> so anyway, they sought him and God delivered him. Jehoshaphat, he's another one, and we don't have time to turn, but in Second Chronicles 17, 6, and it says, and his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. And it says in verse 10, and the fear of the Lord fell on the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. And when we pray, in other words, because chapter 20 is all about Jehoshaphat praying to God for deliverance. These things prompt us to go and pray. I just want to remind you of a few things, okay? Number one, there is a serious drought taking place. Complete reservoirs are running empty in the West. You think, well, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what that translates to. It translates to a very weakened food supply. Okay? That's what that means. Oh, I can't fill my pool. That'll be the least of your worries. But I'm just saying, in the very cradle where the United States receives much of her produce, it's a serious issue right now. In his historic levels of low, Lake Mead, Lake Orville, and so many of the other ones, historic lows. To the point where, before the summer is over, many of them are going to be shut. To what degree, I do not know, but that's where we've come to. Now you ask, well, that's just happenstance. And they're trying to say, well, it's just climate change. Here's what I think it is. It's a change in what people think about the rightful place of the Almighty. You cannot mock God's institution and design for life, sexuality, and creation, and not receive the corresponding consequence. Well, that's our message. That's what we're here for. But not only are we here to say that, we are here to say there's a solution. <laughs> okay? You fly your helicopter to put out your fires, but don't forget about the one in your soul. Prayer, humility, seeking. Now, I want to just draw your attention to something. All across the, the nation today, churches are gathering, or have gathered, depending on your time zone. But did they come? to the altar as though it may be their last day to do so? Did they approach the throne of grace as though it literally is on fire? Because there has to be a desperation. Well, lastly, I look at Hezekiah. This is turning and repenting. In Second Chronicles chapter 29, verses 3 through 6, it says, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers. Carry out all the rubbish. And by the way, Hezekiah brought a great revival too. But by the time Josiah became king, which was about two generations later, I believe, it had already come back in. Carry out the rubbish. And this is why I put this here. It says, carry out the rubbish from the holy place. 
For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. And I just want to say this. The world is just doing what they've always done. This nation is going the way the nations have gone. But the church of the living God is having one as being set up, I believe, for one of the best and grandest times of service we've ever seen. Are we ready? And I would say to what God had said through the prophet there, carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Now for him, it was the temple, wasn't it? What if we take and contemporize the message, JT? Remember that? Contemporize the message. What if we take and put that in modern context? What would be cleaning out the rubbish from the holy place be? Our hearts. The hearts of who? God's people. Because remember the promise, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, repent, and seek, I will hear. And I will heal. It kind of seems to me like God's putting it on us. I believe in the sovereignty of God with every fiber of my being. But there are some things I just don't understand. And I kind of believe right now when it comes to the issue of revival in our day, God is saying to us, your move. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to let you know something. Not only is your house on fire, it's already burned down. The Bible says the wrath of God abides upon you and it's only by his mercy he does not strike you down. But he's rich in mercy, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth. If you hear his voice, cry out to him. Ask for mercy. Ask him to save you from your sin and live.